We continue to make our way through this epistle verse by verse, and this morning we will be looking at verses 19 through 27 under the heading, Virtues of a Soul Winner. Let me read the text to you, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who were without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You will recall that at the climactic end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he gave us that great proclamation, that great commission. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Folks, I would ask you as believers, is that the number one priority in your life? Well, you notice he did not say, go and make money. Go and live for yourself. He did not say, go and pursue the American dream. He didn't even say, go and be involved in the local church, even though that's an appropriate thing to do. He did not say, go and write checks to support others who will go and make disciples. No, he tells each of us to go, to be submissive to my authority. I am commissioning you to do this. Folks, this is Jesus' supreme command for all believers This is the mission of the church. And all through scripture, we see that true disciples make disciples. Those who truly follow Jesus Christ will be, as he said in Matthew 4, 19, fishers of men. On the road to Damascus, the apostle Paul received this message in the in the dramatic, the most dramatic way you could possibly think of. As the effulgence of the glory of God shone around him and blinded him and 
He fell to the ground, the text says, and he heard, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you were persecuting. But rise and enter the city and it shall be told you what you must do. And then we know that later God spoke to Saul, who became Paul, through Ananias. And at that time, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was commissioned to preach the gospel. And the text says, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. But as we come to this letter to the Corinthians, we learn just how passionate he really was about this. He was so passionate, folks, that he was willing to do anything. He was willing to forfeit anything in his life in order to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ, in order to be able to engage people, whether Jew or Gentile, so that he could unleash upon them the gospel that they might be saved. Now, you will recall in the first 18 verses of chapter 9, Paul explains why he had the right to be supported financially, but why he relinquished that right so that he would not be a hindrance to the, to the gospel and his proclamation. And by so doing, he illustrated that great principle that he has been preaching in this, in this passage, especially in chapter 8, that love must limit our liberty. And, of course, that was Paul's personal contribution to the ministry, a ministry that was motivated out of a heart that longed to see people come to Christ, longed to see Christ exalted in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. Folks, Paul's consuming passion was to win the lost. He was willing to do whatever it took to accomplish this goal, even if it meant forsaking his right to financial support. But now as we come to the text before us in verses 19 and following, he is going to describe two essential virtues that were manifested in his life, virtues that need to be in the life of everyone who has a passion to win souls to Christ, which should include all of us. And those two virtues are self-denial and self-discipline. And as we examine this fascinating passage, I would encourage you to ask yourself, is winning people to Christ the number one priority in my life? Or is it somewhere else way down on the list? What am I willing to sacrifice to see this happen? And I fear that for many, evangelism is not much of a priority at all. And sacrificing is, isn't really even on the radar of many people. Oh, we're willing to write a check so that other people can carry our weight, but we really don't have time. or That's not really my gift or whatever. But dear friend, may I encourage you to examine your heart as we look at this text this morning. And I might also add that there is nothing more fulfilling, nothing more rewarding in all the world than being part of the gospel enterprise, which includes being part of a local church, which includes many things. Some of us are able to cultivate, 
Some of us are able to sow. Some of us are able to reap. We're always at different levels on the continuum of salvation with people. But oh, to be a part of that. The church is the launching pad for evangelism and discipleship. And what a joy it is to serve Christ in this way. In Proverbs 11 and verse 30, we read, He who is wise wins souls. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.8, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So Paul was willing to do whatever it took to win souls to Christ. This was the great burden, the great passion of his heart. Now, first of all, I want us to see how self-denial is so important in the gospel enterprise. Notice verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Isn't that an interesting paradox? I'm free from all men, he says, yet I choose to be a slave. You see, he really understood what Jesus said in Mark 10, 44. Remember that? Jesus said, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here, Paul is really restating that principle that it is love that limits liberty. Now, remember the issue that they were dealing with. One of the issues was not eating meat offered to idols. And we remember from our study that, you know, as far as God's concerned, it's okay. You can do that. It's not wrong in and of itself. But if it offends your brother, if it causes him to stumble or whatever, deny yourself of that. Don't do that. And here he underscores this this very same principle in the realm of what you might call pre-evangelism, where we begin to strategize and think how we can, can connect with those that we have, frankly, targeted for evangelism, how we can connect with them in a winsome manner and gain an introduction into, the, into their life. When he says here the phrase, I have made myself a slave, this really harkens back to the Mosaic law that, that we read in Exodus 21. There we read how slaves were guaranteed their freedom after a specific period of time, usually six years. But if the slave didn't want the freedom and loved the master, they could choose to willingly stay with the master. And many of them did this. In verse 5 of Exodus 21, we read, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Folks, Paul served Christ with a pierced ear, as we should. He was a willing slave to God and to others for the sake of the gospel. Now, he had a fascinating pattern. I read it to you a little bit in Acts 13 earlier. 
His pattern was to go into a city and the first thing he would do is go into the synagogue. He would go in and he would preach the gospel. He'd get everybody riled up. A few people would get saved. The rest of them would want to kill him. And then what he would do is he would take those new Jewish believers and enlist them as his fellow missionaries to other Jews and Gentiles. And then they would begin to make their way through the city. But, you know, none of that would have worked if Paul had been inflexible with the Jews and deliberately refused to be a part of their ceremonial laws, even though he knew he was free to do that. I am free from all men, he says. In other words, I am not obligated to the Jewish customs, to the Jewish ceremonies. The gospel of grace liberates me from all of those religious externals. In fact, when he says, I am free from all, it literally in the original language, it it means out of. I'm out of all of that, all of those things. Yet, he says, I have made myself a slave to all that I may win the more. Martin Luther repeats Paul's principles in his work concerning Christian liberty. He says this, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. But then he adds this, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So when he was in the company of Jewish people, he would do what they would typically do. He was willing to, shall we say, be flexible with the traditions. He would modify his habits. He would set aside maybe even some of his own preferences so as not to offend them. He would do nothing to hinder the gospel. Why? He tells us here, so that I may win the more. Paul says this a lot. He was passionate about winning. He repeats this concept twice in verse 20, that I might win Jesus, that I might win those who are under the law. And again, in verse 21, that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, that I may be all that I may be all means or by all means save some. So this was the testimony of Paul. This is what drove him. You might say this is what kept him up at night. This is what determined the direction of his entire life, because he understood, folks, what we need to understand. And that is this. There is nothing more important in all of life than proclaiming and living the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will have eternal merit, not in terms of saving merit, but in terms of bringing in glory to our God. And the rewards even that we receive in heaven. He had a burden for the lost, especially for his kinsmen. I think of what he said in Romans 9. Remember in verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He even says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. I hope you share that passion for your church family. For your community, for your co-workers. 
certainly for your biological family. I was thinking about this. Every morning when I'm with the Lord, I'm sure I pray dozens of times for my grandchildren and other people in my family to come to Christ. And then from there, I move to people in this church, people that I know outside the church. And all through the day, you parents understand this. Think of how many times we pray for our children and for those that we love. So in an effort to win them to Christ, in verse 20, he says this, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. Now, what he's saying here is on those non-essential religious ceremonies, those rituals, those traditions that I know aren't important. All they did was symbolize you know, the, the redemption and pointed to Christ and so forth. But, but I'm happy to accommodate them by doing those things because I don't want to offend them. Now, obviously, he would never violate the, the moral law. We know that. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Matthew five seventeen. Might, might I remind you that the moral law that was summarized in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments was actually bolstered under the New Covenant. Re- remember, Jesus said, you know, the law says thou shalt not kill. But I tell you that that if you even slander someone and ridicule them, then you have committed murder in your heart. You shall not. The law says you shall not commit adultery. But but I'm telling you that if you even lust after another person, you have violated the law and so forth. But the point is that it was not wrong for him to accommodate the Jews, by joining in on their customs and their feasts and their rituals and ceremonies, the Sabbath, dietary restrictions, and so forth, all of which really symbolized their need for spiritual cleansing and pointed them to the work, the person and the work of the Messiah. You will recall, perhaps in Romans 14, there Paul talks about how we we shouldn't be judging a brother and pressuring them to violate their conscience when even if if they don't understand their liberty in Christ and they surround themselves with self-imposed rules and that type of thing, like many of of the Jews would do even after they came to Christ. He said in verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God, and so forth. So what Paul was doing was like this. It was not in any way an assault on the gospel of grace. These things are, shall we say, just really no big deal. And if you make a big deal out of them, you can really forfeit an opportunity for the gospel. Back to verse 20, he says to those who are under the law as under the law. He's referring here to the ceremonial law. You know, I'm willing to do that, though not being, he says, myself under the law. In other words, I know there's no spiritual benefit to doing these things, but I'm happy to do them. Why? So that I might win those who are under the law. Now, there's several fascinating illustrations in Scripture of how serious Paul and the saints were about denying themselves for the sake of winning others. Let me remind you of a few of them. You recall the situation with Timothy in Acts chapter 16 and following. There we read that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but, now catch this, his father was a Greek. 
big trouble, big trouble here for the Jews. You're not pure. You're kind of a half-breed here. It goes on to say, and he was well-spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So he had a great testimony here. Then it says Paul wanted this man to go with him. So what does he do? He takes him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Boy, that's a tough deal, isn't it? Timothy, you're a godly young man. Boy, I think God can really use you. There's a lot of Jews around here, and we're going to need to talk here. We're going to need to have something done. We're going to need to be circumcised in order for you to really be effective with the Jews. You know, it's interesting. Later on, Titus, who was a Greek, was being criticized basically by the Judaizers, and Paul decided that he wouldn't do that for Titus. It's interesting. So in Galatians 2, 1 through 14. So there are limits to this type of accommodation. It, it, it depends upon the situation. Let me give you another example of the kind of self-denial that sometimes is necessary for a passionate and effective gospel ministry. In, in Acts 21, great story. Paul comes to Jerusalem and and he meets with Pastor James and all of the elders and after a season of praise for all that God had done, uh, the tone becomes much more somber and they tell him, you know, Paul, there's some false allegations going on uh, around here about you. Verse 20, and they said to him, you brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. In other words, there's, there's thousands of Jews that have come to Christ here, but, but they're, they're, they're zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Of course, this is a spin job, if I ever heard one. You know, the Judaizers are doing this. Perhaps some of the Pharisees, yeah, yeah don't listen to this, this moron. He's telling you to forget all of your Jewish heritage and all of this. So don't pay any attention to him. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. By the way, as I think about that, there is never any end of conflict in, of, in ministry, right? There's always some spin job. There's always something. That's what's going on here. But remember now, most of the Jewish converts to Christianity maintained their fidelity to various aspects of the ceremonial law. They understood that the law was fulfilled in Christ, but these practices were at the very center of their culture, the center of their life, determined everything that they did, basically. It was the heart of their culture. So why abandon these things? After all, the Jerusalem Council in, in, in Acts, Acts 15 didn't say that, that, that those things are forbidden. The apostles did not forbid this. They only insisted that we not impose these things on Gentile believers and so forth. But boy, this is something the enemy could take a hold of. So in verse 21, again, we read, they have been told. By the way, in Greek, it's, it's katecheo. We get our word catechism from that. And, and, and the grammar tells us that it's being repeatedly told. So th th this is really going on. This is picking up momentum. 
they have been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Of course, Paul never made any such of a such statement. He never told the Jews to forsake Moses and don't circumcise your kids or anything like that. Instead, he told them that Jesus fulfilled the law. You've been delivered from its yoke. But if you choose to still do some of these things, uh, you're at liberty to do that. So all of this is confusing to the Jewish believers. And potentially devastating to the first century church, not to mention a big turnoff to other Jews who don't know Christ. So something has to be done. So in verse 22, we read, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So the elders have a proposed solution for Paul. One that will require self-denial on Paul's part. We read about it in verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. Here's our idea. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. Now, you've got to have a little Jewish background here. These men had taken a Nazarite vow. You read about it in uh, in Numbers 6. These would happen for various lengths of time, typically a 30-day commitment of total separation to the Lord, and they wouldn't cut their hair for these periods of time. They would abstain from alcoholic drinks. They would eat nothing made from grapes, as I remember, um, no no vinegar, avoid contact with a corpse, and all this type of thing. By the way, there there were only only three that had a lifelong Nazarite vow. is Samuel, Samson, and John the Baptist. So anyway, they've got this plan now. And so part of the plan is for Paul to join these guys that have had this vow, to join them by participating in some form of purification ceremony. And perhaps they would have considered this to be appropriate because Paul would be thought, uh, would, would have been considered unclean because he's been in Gentile territory. But then secondly, Paul, why don't you pay the expenses for these men and, and to, to be shaved and, and pay for their sacrifices? And if you look up the sacrifices, they're fairly expensive, what they have to give. And, and, and it, by the way, it was also customary for wealthy people to show charity in such a way. So the point is, Paul, by performing these acts of piety, which is all consistent with the law that the Jews will see, but not for the purpose of gaining a righteous standing before God, but if you were to do this, the people will have a living example of what you actually teach. Verse 24, then all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. In other words, they will understand as Jewish Christians that they're free to participate in these things as an expression of their love and devotion to Christ, especially during this transitory stage of, of, of church history. And so what does Paul do? Well, he says, are you kidding me? I'm an apostle. I'm not going to do something that stupid. None of that makes any difference. And I'm going to leave my hair the way it is. No, he didn't say that at all. Verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. 
By the way, this is not without precedent. In Acts 18.18, we read in in Sincrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. So he's willing to do some of these Jewish things. Acts 20 and verse 16, he was hurrying to Jerusalem, it says, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he's willing to participate in some of these things. Folks, to make this real practical, if you're going to witness to a Jew, don't flaunt your liberty in Christ by violating their Sabbath laws or, or I don't know, giving them a country ham for Christmas. You know, you, you just don't do those types of things. You be sensitive to these types of issues. When I was growing up, many of my best friends, and I still have a lot of Jewish friends, but my, most of my best friends were Jewish people. My father and I would often go on Canadian fishing trips with Jewish businessmen, and Dad and I would, would be sensitive to all the things that they would do, commitments to their ceremonial law. If I can expand this a little bit, folks, if, if, if you're going to have an audience with a Muslim, you need to be sensitive to the things that they do. Now, you would never do anything that would violate something that, that God would forbid, but in terms of a lot of these non-essential customs, you know, Go along with them. If it's Hindus, even a postmodern millennial snowflake, you know, whatever it is, you know, whoever you're dealing with, you've got to somehow be flexible with these people. I, I've had the joy of sharing Christ with non-believers in a number of different countries. And, and my goodness, you have to learn, you know, the sensitivities of these people. And that's what Paul is telling, telling us. You've got to be willing to flex with their culture. You know, I've had the, the, the joy of interacting on a number of occasions with the intellectual elite of British and, and American people in, in those universities. But boy, how I'm going to talk with them is going to be very different from talking with a Mormon cowboy in Utah while we're riding a horse, you know, or how I'm dealing with a farmer here in Cheatham County. You've got to be sensitive to those things. So regarding his commitment to self-denial with the Gentiles, verse 21, he says to those who are without the law, now referring to Gentiles, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Now, of course, Paul is going to be obedient to the moral law. He was just not under the ceremonial law, but he was under the law of Christ, the law of love. And he would have gotten nowhere with the Gentiles if he would have come in and burdened them with all of the Jewish rituals and so forth. In Acts 15, verse 10, Peter confronted the Judaizers who insisted that believers be circumcised. And he says, why do you put God to the test by placing upon them the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So let's don't do that type of thing. And Paul's self-denial even extended to weak believers, Jews and Gentiles. Notice verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. A lot of those new believers did not fully comprehend and appreciate and apply the gospel to their life. They were hung up on some weird, even superstitious types of things. Their, their, their faith was not strong enough to enable them to perceive their, their full liberty in Christ. So they were governed sometimes by superstitions. That happens even in our culture, in our Christian culture. Strange prejudices, legalistic preferences or whatever. Overscrupulous believers, both Jew and Gentile, easily offended by all sorts of things, including a lot of non-essentials of the faith. 
So he's, he, he's saying that, hey, I, I'm willing to, to bow to that. Like with the Gentiles, remember, I, I won't eat the meat. I don't want to offend them. With the Jews, I, I, I know a lot of you still want to worship at the temple. Let's go to the temple. I know a lot of you still have, you know, the, the Sabbath restrictions and the ritual cleansings. I mean, they had things like, like um, all blood had to be drained out of meat before they would ever eat meat, or it had to be broiled before it could be eaten. And, and even to this day, you, you could never mix meat with dairy. In fact, you couldn't even use the same utensils that you were using. You couldn't stick a fork in the cheese and then a fork in the meat. You'd violate the law. I mean, they had all kinds of things like this. You could, you could never eat great products that were produced by non-Jews. So, you know, Paul's going to be sensitive to that. Uh, they had one that, that's, that was kind of funny. They, 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 they could not travel more than a 1,000 yards for a number of reasons with the law. Uh, on, on the Sabbath, because that would be considered work. You couldn't travel from your home on the Sabbath. So what they would do to get around that is they would pack up some of their belongings in a backpack and they'd go a thousand yards and put the backpack down and say, well, this is part of my home. This is some of my possessions. Now I can go another thousand yards. You know, so you have all these weird things that that people will do. But anyway, the point is, I'm going to be sensitive to all of that. That's the idea. Let me give you another illustration of how they dealt with these controversies between Jews and Gentiles. And this, this helps us see our need for self-denial. Remember the, the first church council in Acts 15. They had to deal with, you know, some of the Jewish believers, the Judaizers telling the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised. So you read how all the apostles and, and, and the elders, they get together and they describe all of this. They have a debate. And then finally, James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, says, OK, that's enough. And he has kind of the authority. He stands up and he rules on the issue. And he says in verse 19 of Acts 15, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. In other words, let's don't weigh them down with these Jewish non-essentials. None of that is necessary for salvation. But here's what we should do that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. All right, let's go ahead and tell the Gentiles here. Guys, look, in order to not offend the Jews, we're telling them to lay off of putting all those restrictions on you. Here's what we would like for you to do. Don't, don't eat meat as sacrifice to idols. That, that's horribly offensive to Jewish people. And it was offensive to a lot of Gentile converts that were still weak in their faith. Don't do that. He says also, and from fornication. In other words, any kind of sexual sin, which is kind of obvious, but that would include, you know, all of the, if you worked at, at, as, a, as, as a particular, as a bricklayer or whatever it might be, you would have guilds, they would have idols, they would have their own kind of worship types of services. And most of the time that would include things that were very immoral. Stay away from that stuff. All right. That's offensive to the Jews. It's going to limit your testimony. Stay away from that. And, he says, from what is strangled and from blood. You see, the Gentiles would often strangle animals when they would kill them to preserve their blood. And they would use that for their ceremonies. And a lot of times they would drink the blood. And, of course, that is absolutely taboo with the Jewish people. They want to drain all of the blood. So you've got these things going on. And so they're telling them, so, so Gentiles, don't do those things, okay? Why? Because those things will rob you from being effective 
with Jewish people. Verse 21, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. In other words, guys, don't needlessly violate the Mosaic sanctions and, and, and destroy the church's credibility with unbelieving Jews and even with believing ones. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 9, he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may, that, so that I may by all means save some. In other words, I'm willing to practice self-denial. I'm, I'm willing to limit my liberties in Christ to help even weak believers grow. I, I'm willing to modify my lifestyle and set aside my preferences that might restrict my ability to be heard and might hinder my effectiveness in bringing a person to Christ and so forth. By the way, I want to add something here. This is very important because this, this passage has been very misinterpreted, misunderstood. When it says, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some, he's not saying I'm willing to become like the world in order to win it. This is not a call for contextualization whereby the church and we as believers are to mirror worldliness. I mean, James tells us, for example, in 4.4, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And some people want to use this passage to somehow justify all manner of worldliness in, in Christian living and in evangelism and in the church and so forth. And all of that betrays a, a profound misunderstanding of the context here of the Corinthian problem. What Paul is advocating is condescension, not contextualization. He's advocating self-denial. Not compromise or evangelical pragmatism, so to speak. It's all right to adjust the method, but never adjust the message. We never don't want to do anything that offends the holiness of God and the, and, and the truth in order to avoid offense. And too many Christians today are more concerned about what the world thinks than what God thinks. We've got to be very careful with that. Galatians 1 and verse 10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So we've got to be careful. It's really sickening to see how so often churches will try to kind of sneak up on people with the gospel, water it down, kind of give them a gospel light so that nobody will be offended Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. He says, we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Very important concept. So Paul wasn't advocating some worldly Christianity that, that makes sinners think that, that um, coming to Christ doesn't require any significant changes in your life, that and, and so forth. What he's simply saying here is be sensitive to not needlessly offend other people with your personal behavior. Verse 23, he goes on, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. In other words, I want to be a, a co-sharer with you in all of the blessings of the gospel. And therefore, I'm willing to deny myself. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win people to Christ. But secondly and finally, he speaks of self-discipline. 
Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So he says, run in such a way that you may win. Folks, you'll never be effective in winning people to Christ unless you discipline yourself to win the prize of winning souls to Christ. Evangelism requires disciplined effort. It requires a great exertion on the part of those who are committed to it. And the imagery here is derived from the Isthmian Games, uh, celebrated every third summer in the region around Corinth. It was like the Olympian Games held in Olympia, and they had some others as well. But it's interesting, the the type of self-denial and self-discipline that was required for this, and Paul had this in mind. You had to prove, if you're going to enter into the Games, you had to document that you had been in training for at least 10 months in order to even qualify to compete in the games. Verse 25, he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That could be translated, goes into strict training. In other words, they exercise self-discipline. And we know that they would do this in, in the renunciation of certain things they would eat. They had all kinds of diet restrictions. Even sexual abstinence was a, was a requirement. But their training also included, once you got to 30 days before the games, it also included rigorous exercise observed by the people you're competing with. How would you like to do that? You had to do that in preparation for the games. He says, then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. By the way, all of that work so that they could get what was basically a plastered pine reef to put on their head. Later, by the way, they used celery. Then I heard they went back to the pine. I forget how all that history goes, but, but it was the highest honor in their culture that they would bestow upon a man. The, 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 the winners were, were basically immortalized. By the way, let me ask you, how many of those winners can you name today? You get the point? Think of all the blood, sweat, and tears required in Olympic athletes. And I, I know a few of them, so I know the rigorous training they go through, as well as professional athletes. For the Olympic athletes, what do they get? Well, they get a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal worth a couple hundred bucks. And they get a lot of notoriety. And if you're a professional athlete, you may make a lot of money and be famous. And then you die. You know, it's kind of like, what's the use? He says, then they do it for, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Folks, we serve the living Christ. And when we win souls to Christ, we bring glory to him. And we don't just start a race, we finish it. We get serious about it in our self-denial and in our self-discipline. We exert every ounce of our being for the sake of the gospel. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, that's the one I want, right? And that's what we get as we serve Christ. Second Timothy 4, 8, in the future, Paul says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Now, Paul goes on with the imagery of the games. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. In other words, I know the direction I'm going. I know what I have to do to win this race. And also, I box in such a way as not beating the air. It's a reference to either shadow boxing or perhaps even um, missing your opponent when you're swinging. It could be translated either way. What he's saying here, folks, is true evangelism is purposeful. It is direct. It is intentional. It is focused. It is forceful. Beloved, you want to ask yourself, am I just kind of running around or do I know where I'm supposed to be running? And am I just beating the air or am I purposeful and direct and intentional and focused and forceful? You know, I used to tell myself, well, to be real honest, winning people to Christ really isn't my thing. And I was pretty convinced of it. That's not really my thing. You know, I'm more of a teacher type, prayer warrior, giver. You know, I'll help out in that way. Yeah, that's all wonderful. But, you know, I finally had to admit the truth. And the truth was that I was a lazy, self-absorbed, undisciplined, self-centered coward. And you know what? I still struggle with that. And I bet you do, too. Do you know Paul struggled with that? <laughs> That's why he said in Ephesians six nineteen, pray on my behalf that utterances, utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Folks, pray for me. Let's pray for each other. We all struggle with this. Don't kid yourself. The Lord wouldn't ask us to do something he has not equipped us to do, that he has not empowered us to do. Beloved, we all have to battle our flesh. Notice what he says in verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Discipline. Hypopiazzo in the original language, it's interesting, it means to beat or to bruise. Literally, it's a verb from boxing, which means to give a black eye. To give a black eye. Dear Christian, here's the point. If you don't control your body, your body will control you. Your flesh will control you. You've got to discipline yourself like an athlete. Think of all those who have preached to others. And then have been disqualified because of sexual sin or perhaps pride or greed or whatever. Paul was serious about this, making his body his slave rather than being a slave to his body. So I want to challenge you this morning. Get serious about winning souls to Christ. Ask yourself, am I willing to deny even some of my Christian liberties in order to be more effective and jettison anything that might hinder, hinder our effectiveness. You know, everything from, you know, how we talk and how we conduct ourselves. Even how we dress. You know, you need to avoid Christian uniforms. I know a guy who, to this day, wears a huge cross around his neck. And he's usually got some Christian 
T-shirt with all the verses on it and all of this type of thing. And he walks around saying real loud, amen, praise God, hallelujah. And I tell you, when he gets around people, you know, he's like a rabid skunk. I mean, everybody just kind of goes the opposite direction. You know, you just need to be sensitive to people. Be sensible, be intentional. And be willing to reach out to people that you think may never respond to the gospel. Be willing to walk around and look up in the tree, so to speak, and see that little thief, Zacchaeus, sitting up there. Saying, hey, man, why don't we go to your place and talk? Isn't that what Jesus did? And in closing, folks, may I just say, as your pastor... I have a real concern for our church. I fear that that we live in a safe little bubble here at Calvary Bible Church. And it's wonderful that God gives us that safety, but if we're not careful, we can seal ourselves off from a lost and a dying world. We can say to ourselves in a self-righteous kind of smug way, well, we've, we, we've got the right doctrine, you know. We've got the right music. We've got the right programs, the right vocabulary, the right fashion, the right habits, the right preferences. And our unsaved friends look at us like a bunch of religious freaks. Beloved, our unsaved friends aren't going to come to us. We've got to go to them. And some of those unsaved people are here in this room today. And so I would ask you to get serious about reaching out, literally target people for evangelism. Lord, who have you brought into my life that, that I'm burdened for? There's some, some of you in this room that I'm deeply burdened for, that I pray for constantly, especially some of you in my family. Who are those people? And then strategize. How can I reach them with the gospel? How can I, shall we say, go into the synagogue, you know, and unleash the gospel if some get saved and then we tag team the rest of them in town or whatever it is. Write them a card. Write them a letter. Share your testimony. There's a thousand ways you can do this. But, folks, we've got to be intentional. We've got to exercise self-denial and self-discipline. Be willing to be a slave to all men so that we can see people come to Christ. and Give people the message of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... These reminders, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we will be able to live them out so that we can see others come to faith in Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for empowering us. And so this day, once again, we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org. .org. 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 .org.